The second reading is from Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, which you can find in page 1112. That's Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intensely at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Well, thank you very much indeed. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good gift that you give to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of this day and the opportunity it brings for us to gather together in this way. And we pray now, Father, in your mercy, by your spirit, bring your word to our hearts in convicting power that we might see your son, love him and serve him gladly until he comes. Amen. Uh, Well, it is a very great joy uh, and a privilege to be with you this morning. uh, And I'm very grateful to uh, William and Janet for their kind hospitality and for the invitation uh, to speak to you. Um, In Australia, our recent uh, national census results have been um, published indicating that 39% of Australians now consider that they have no religion and only 44% of Australians identify as Christians. Uh, This is the first time that fewer than 50% of Australians have nominated Christianity uh, as their religion compared, say, to 100 years ago when 98% would have done so. Um, Of course, it doesn't mean that uh, people have suddenly lost their faith. It mostly means that people who never went to church have now decided to stop saying that they belong to the church that they never went to. Uh, But this does not mean that Australians have lost interest in Christianity. 33% say that they would accept an invitation to church if they were to receive one from a family member or friend. But surprisingly... 56% of people say they don't know a Christian family member or friend. Uh, As a former holder of my office once said, it is becoming as, uh, to know a Christian is becoming as exotic in Australia as to know a zookeeper. So are we to think then that God is finished with Australia? Have we passed peak Christianity so that by the time of our children's grandchildren, Christian faith will largely largely have disappeared from the life of the Australian community? Uh, And if I may reverently ask, what about here? Uh, The British Social Attitudes Survey of 2018 found 53% of Britons viewed themselves as non-religious. Do you think that God has finished with Great Britain? Uh, Just for certainty's sake, let me say, I certainly do not think that God has finished either with Australia or with Britain. Now, the Book of Acts, uh, as you know, records the very earliest episodes in the spread of the Christian message through the ancient world. That is one of the things that makes it so gripping, isn't it? That uh, 
uh, that the gospel moves into places where it has never been heard before for the very first time. And so we're so gripped to hear this story and come back to it again and again. In chapter 13, the church in Antioch, a multi-ethnic church, sends Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey that is recorded in chapters 13 and 14. It's a kind of loop from Antioch in Syria across the Mediterranean Sea to Cyprus, north into Turkey to another Antioch called Pisidian Antioch, and then east to Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, in, play, in, uh, in where, what we now call Turkey. Then they uh, backtrack the way they came and eventually sail back to Antioch in Syria. And in chapter 14, at verse 27, we read, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The two chapters of Acts take about six minutes to read, but the missionary journey lasted about three years, from 45 to 47 AD or thereabouts. Now, here's the question. How had God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles? What were the marks of the progress of the gospel? How did the gospel go out so that people believed it and were established in faith in Christ? And since all of Scripture is God's gift to his people, what can we learn to expect in the progress of the gospel today. I want to think about four things from this story that I think are worth noticing. Proclamation, opposition, superstition, consolidation. Firstly, proclamation. In chapter 13, Luke records for us uh, Paul's speech in Pisidian Antioch, and it's a sample of the gospel message they proclaimed in every town. It's a message about the son of David, Israel's saviour, Jesus, who was crucified by Pontius Pilate, but whom God raised from the dead. And the message is summarised in chapter 13 at verse 38. I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Forgiveness. And then in the next verse, verse 39 of chapter 13, Paul says, through him, everyone who believes is set free from that which the law of Moses could not set you free. Freedom, forgiveness and freedom for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile, through Israel's saviour, Jesus, crucified for sin and raised from the dead. That's the message. It's a message about Jesus. And that's the offer, forgiveness and freedom from sin. That was the business of Paul's missionary journey, proclamation of freedom and forgiveness through Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? No wonder they were glad to hear it. It's important. It's personal. It's vital because as the Archbishop of Canterbury said in his funeral sermon for Her Late Majesty, we must all give account before the merciful judgment of God. And Paul and his companions 
went into Gentile territory and proclaimed that Israel's saviour is saviour of the world, forgiveness and freedom from sin and death and judgment through the gospel, through the death and resurrection of the Son. Good news. So chapter 14, verse 1 says, they spoke and a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Verse 3 says, they spoke boldly for the Lord. When they had to leave Iconium, they went to Lystra and Derbe. And verse 7 says, they continued to preach the gospel. Now we'll see in a minute uh, how Paul engaged with the pre-existing beliefs and the mistaken understandings of his hearers. But the essential message was the message about Jesus. Now there is a need to respond with sensitivity and wisdom to the questions and concerns that our friends and our culture have about Christian faith, a culture that has become so forgetful. We need to engage with all that and do it as well as we can. And the resurrection of Jesus has important implications for the issues of the day, whether they're the environment or poverty or mental health or whatever it may be, but we must never forget what the Christian message is. It's not a message primarily about family or marriage. It's not a message about the origin of life. It's not even a message about doing good, as important as all of those things are and as the gospel makes its impact on all of those issues. It's a message about Jesus, God's Son, God's King, the saviour of the world who brings freedom and forgiveness by his death and resurrection. That is the message we have to share with the whole world and only we can do it. It's the message that has changed the world one life at a time. But every life is precious to God and every life may receive this message and every life, I would say to you, must have the opportunity to hear it because forgiveness and freedom from sin comes from nowhere else but Jesus. That's important, isn't it? And of eternal consequence. As Archbishop, uh, I'm privileged to travel um, to uh, ordinary Sydney churches from Sunday to Sunday with an occasional London church thrown in for a good measure. And I've been so encouraged since COVID because when I became Archbishop, we were all locked up. I couldn't go anywhere. But I've been so encouraged this year as I visited churches, ordinary churches spread across the Diocese of Sydney, that in every church where they are making an effort to bring the gospel to their community, that is what is happening. People are coming along. People are engaging in uh, um, inquirers' courses or signing up to read the Bible one-to-one or meeting with the minister or others to ask their questions and to hear about Jesus, and many are repenting and turning in faith to Christ because it's good news of freedom and forgiveness for sin 
and it makes the heart glad. And every church, I'm telling you, that I've been to where they are making a conscious effort to do this, God is bringing to his son those whom he's appointed to life. Verse 1 of chapter 14 says, At Iconium a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. In Derby, verse 21 says, They preached the gospel and won a large number of disciples. Gospel proclamation is the means by which God saves his people. Chapter 13, verse 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. God has determined that his people will believe when they hear the gospel. The great encouragement to keep on speaking about Jesus is that God has appointed people to life. God has appointed people to believe. They come to faith as they hear the gospel proclaimed and surely that alone is sufficient reason to keep on speaking, isn't it? The soil may be hard, the context may be contested, but God has appointed people to life. The first mark of the progress of the gospel is proclamation. But the second is opposition. Not everyone believes. Some reject the gospel, chapter 13, verse 46 says. And notice it doesn't say God appointed some to believe and some not to believe. Luke is more careful than that. He says God has appointed some to believe and others thrust it aside. They were not helpless. They were deliberate and active. They thrust it aside. They rejected the gospel Uh, Another translation says they refused to believe. But not only that, they opposed the mission. The rhetoric of a pluralist and inclusive society, I don't know if you encounter that kind of rhetoric in London, we do in Sydney. The rhetoric of a pluralist and inclusive society is that everyone is entitled to their view, their experience, their voice. But the reality is that some not only reject the gospel, they want to prevent other people from hearing the gospel as well. So verse 2 says, those who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. They're not responding to the message or offering an alternative. They're targeting Paul and Barnabas and spreading false reports against them to others. But the campaign of opposition doesn't stay a matter of slander and gossip only. It moves on to physical violence. Verse 5 says, They plot to mistreat and stone them. The opponents followed the apostles to Lystra. And verse 19 says, They stirred up the crowd. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, and left him for dead. God has appointed people to believe and God sends his messengers into the world to proclaim freedom and forgiveness from sin. It's good news, but from the very beginning, the work has always been opposed by those who reject the gospel and thrust it aside. Now, why does Luke tell us this? This record from the first missionary journey, other than that it was 
the case. God has preserved it in his word so that we won't be surprised by opposition, we won't be dismayed by opposition, and we won't give up because of it. The second mark of the progress of the gospel is opposition to the progress of the gospel. Thirdly, the gospel is proclaimed in the face of superstition. In Lystra, there's a man who has been paralysed from birth. Paul is preaching to the man. He recognises that he is placing his faith in Jesus and Paul calls out to him, stand up. Uh, Now, Luke tells us in verse 3 of chapter 14, that as the apostles boldly speak for the Lord, the Lord bore witness to to the preaching of uh, grace, to the preaching of the message of his grace, by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Precisely because it was the Lord's doing, we cannot say that gospel preaching must be accompanied by signs and wonders. They are works of God. So God may do them at any time he chooses, and he does choose to do them when the gospel goes for the first time into Gentile territory. The work of his messengers is to proclaim the message. If God chooses to confirm it by works, by miraculous works, then he will do so. But of course, the great miracle that accompanies the preaching of the gospel is that people believe. They're turned from death to life, rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son. What greater work and wonder is there than that? Now, what Luke records in Lystra is that after the healing of the paralyzed man, the people rush to the wrong conclusion. They think Paul and Barnabas are their gods. Zeus and Hermes come to visit them. And so the priest of the temple of Zeus quickly calls together the crowd with the intention of offering sacrifices to the apostles. Now, the fact that the priest of the temple of Zeus and the crowd thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods is a pretty good indication that they were convinced of the fact of the healing. But they interpret it incorrectly. They saw the healing, but they didn't know what to make of it. They got it wrong, though they'd seen the healing with their own eyes. The healing itself doesn't tell you anything about the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So whenever there is gospel proclamation, there is the need to correct the superstitious and mistaken ideas that already exist about God and the spiritual life. Now, we meet this all the time. Some people don't want to hear anything about the Lord. They let us know that. But others are interested to hear what we have to say but they already have their own ideas or religion or spirituality and we need gently and patiently and graciously and wisely to address those ideas as well. The uh, British Attitude Survey that I referred to earlier from 2018, we've got Google too, you know. The British British Attitude Survey uh, found that of the 53% of Britons who describe themselves as non-religious, 
only half of them do not believe in God. They're non-religious, but they believe in God. 20% of them say they definitely believe in life after death. And one in six, 17%, say they believe in the power of prayer. But they're non-religious. So we might say, or the Bible might assess them, um, non-pejoratively, to be superstitious. Even as many of us too have various kinds of superstition belief, superstitious belief, which need to be corrected and are corrected by the scriptures that were breathed out by God for correction and for training in righteousness. The gospel of forgiveness and freedom always has to confront mistaken spiritualities and superstitions. Freedom and forgiveness of sin comes through faith in Jesus Christ and in no other way. And no religious practice or spiritual discipline can secure what Jesus offers or improve on the achievement of the cross and the empty tomb. And of course, the non-religious world is even more crowded with superstitious practices and rituals from, walking under, from not walking under ladders <laughs> to consulting the newspaper horoscopes or online affirmations or to the secret rituals that people practice in their own homes, from using their special pen or eating special food or visiting a special place or reciting a special phrase to get them through the day or pass their exam or succeed in their job application or complete their project or whatever it may be. Whenever the gospel is preached and believed, it confronts the mistaken spiritualities and superstitions that we already had. As Paul speaks to the crowd of followers of Zeus, he wants them to know that their gods are dead, but there is a living God who made everything that is. There is the living God who made everything, and there is everything he made, and they are in completely separate categories. Nothing that is in the world is God. Do not worship or live in fear of what God has made. Do not worship or live in fear of the mountains or the rivers or the fields. Well, not much chance of that, you say. All right. Real estate, music, food, celebrity, they're not gods. Don't worship them or serve them. The ancient gods, love and war and sex and wealth and power, don't seem that ancient, actually. But they're not God. Don't worship them. Don't make sacrifices to them. Don't serve them as slaves. Worship God and serve him. Know him. And Paul says the God who made everything is good, not capricious, not petulant, not deceptive, 
not miserly. Good and generous and kind, he sends the rain to water the fields, to grow the crops, to feed you and to make you happy. He made all this and gave it to you to make you happy. So worship him, serve him, know him. He's a good God. Worship the true and living God. Paul had already preached the gospel in Lystra. They'd heard of the freedom and forgiveness that Jesus brings. And now Paul confronts their superstition. The creator God, the good and living God, he's the one who sent Jesus for you. Worship and serve him. Marks of the progress of the gospel, proclamation, opposition, confronting superstition, and finally, consolidation. We're told that in Iconium, a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Uh, There were believers in Lystra who came to Paul's aid when he was flogged outside the city. In Derby, they won a large number of disciples. But the mission to those cities was not over at the point at which some of the hearers believed. Verse 21 says, they went back to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. In Lystra, Paul had been stoned, dragged outside the city and left for dead. But he went back. In Iconium, their opponents had stirred up the people against them and plotted to mistreat and stone them, so they fled. But now they went back. In Antioch, they'd been driven out by the leading men of the city and the women of high standing. The apostles had even shaken the dust off their feet when they left. But now... They were going back. Why? Verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. They returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch. They returned to the places where they'd encountered strong opposition and even physical attack so that they could strengthen the believers that they'd left behind. And part of that strengthening work was to remind remind them that discipleship would be costly. That's important to know, isn't it? If it gets hard... It's not going wrong. Because through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And this is something that we are encountering perhaps in a newer way than we are accustomed to, even since uh, I first became a Christian at the age of 21. In the 80s, it was... Whatever's true for you. But it's not really that today if your truth is the gospel. 
It's the truth that sets you free. But in our cultural moment, this particular truth has become particularly offensive, has it not? So they return to strengthen the disciples and remind them that it is through many tribulations that we come to the kingdom. The rewards would be great. Jesus has won for them citizenship in the kingdom of God. But the road from here to there would be hard. So they appointed elders and committed them to the Lord in prayer and fasting. Little congregations of believers in Jesus in a sea of hostility and opposition and superstition. But they had the message that had been preached. The apostles appointed elders and they entrusted them to the Lord. Of course, they had the Lord. The Lord who had sent the apostles in the first place. The Lord who had appointed them to believe, to hear the message and receive it with thanks and trust. The Lord who had opened a door to faith for the Gentiles. It might be a hard discipleship. It might be a costly obedience, but there was no risk. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. For he is trustworthy. His death for our sins, his resurrection to life, his reign at God's right hand, his constant intercession for his people and his certain and imminent return make him utterly trustworthy. Four marks of the progress of the gospel. The gospel progresses by proclamation. Jesus who brings forgiveness of sin and freedom from sin's condemnation. Gospel proclamation takes place in the context of opposition. But God has appointed some to believe, even while others reject the gospel. Wherever the gospel is preached, it has to confront the superstitions that hide in our hearts. We have put our faith in a living God, the creator and provider who provides everything we need out of his goodness for us to enjoy. Most of all, he's provided his son. And so we must strengthen and encourage one another who have put our faith in him because the road of discipleship may be hard, but we need have no fear for we put our trust in the Lord who is trustworthy. And all those appointed for eternal life will believe. Do not be discouraged about the progress of the gospel, but rather proclaim Christ as Lord. Amen.